something about that experience was making me the human I was going to become. Mm-hmm. And it was to be okay and to find that healthy outlet for my energy that I desperately needed. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hello, singers and singing teachers. Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct. I'm your host, Megan Ferrison. I met my next guest at a house party packed with musicians and theater people. Stephen told me he was auditioning for a local show, and I told him I was a voice coach, and we ended up working together for a while and becoming friends. In this episode, we learn how a technical-minded engineer found himself through theater. I love Stephen's story, and I think you will too. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Megan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am so excited um, to have you and, and excited for you to share your story. So I would love for you to tell us, how did you get involved in music? Because you're not a professionally trained musician, are you? No, I'm not. And uh, I've listened to your podcast to actually help connect me to some of my people. Right. Mm. So the people that you've had on your podcast, I feel like are now part of my people. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking. And I think even somebody on your podcast brought up Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. Yes. Yeah. And so I find that to be a fascinating book. And I've thought back to my own life and the green lights I've had in my life. And a couple real, you know, big red hard stops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to sing, coach, conduct, I really resonate with sing because I'm, I like to sing in the community theater scene. Mm. And I have found my people and I have found a place of mental health that's very positive with theater. Mm. And singing has been a 20-year love for me. But my um, theater started back 30 years ago. And singing started, and until I really thought about what I was going to say today, and, you know, the whole Matthew McConaughey green lights concept, I hadn't remembered that my grandma, two hours away, I grew up in South Dakota, Mm -hmm. two hours away, I grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and she was in Harriet, and we used to drive there and go to church. And I remember, out of one of my very earliest memories of singing, I didn't realize I had until I really meditated on it, was singing a little bit louder and a little bit louder every time I went there because grandma would lavish me with praise and tell me what a beautiful voice and you sing like an angel and I get verklempt and I just think about, oh my God, I used to sing as a little boy Mm -hmm. and then fast forward many years and thinking I couldn't sing. So I had this huge green light from my grandma, you know, Betty Knowles, Way back in the day, and and that was, uh, I could have been two, three, four years old. And then fast forward to fourth grade, and I I just knew that I sang like an angel with grandma. Fourth grade happened, and there was this bus tour going to the local high school, where I ended up going to high school, Aberdeen um, Central High School. Mm -hmm. And somebody set aside money in the budget and I've listened to people on your podcast say how important it is as music educators to set, you know, to work with your administrators. Well, somebody set aside money so that I could be on a bus in fourth grade to see the local high school perform My Fair Lady. Mm. 
And I fell in love with that show. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I was watching. I'd never seen live theater. I never saw people singing live, and it touched me. And I remember thinking how much I loved it, never imagined me on that stage, but just loving it and feeling this passion. Like, this is amazing. What about it specifically did you love? And you're 10, right? I mean, yeah. fourth grade, 10 yeah. years old, uh -huh, Stephen. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. um, what, did, I don't know, tell me what you were thinking or feeling. The emotion. And I remember being a very, I mean, I think back on it and what a teacher and what a, what a little bit older bully thought of me. I was called cocky. Mm -hmm. I was called, and I felt the energy of being obnoxious. I felt so much energy and passion and emotion. And, and it always came out in a negative way. It always came out in a, maybe a dysfunctional way, a disruptive way. And a lot of those behaviors for myself is part of my mental health journey about how I got to be who I am today. Mm. Uh, a lot of those behaviors were lonely-inducing behaviors because I felt like, looking back, I didn't have many friends, and I wanted friends. And I was looking on stage at people being very functional and emoting mm. and getting along. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a world I wanted to be a part of. I just didn't know it at 10. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking, wow, look at the fun they're having together. Mm -hmm. And they're not running around on, uh, on like the football playground or on the basketball playground. They weren't doing a sport. They were emoting together and they were getting along and it looked like this dream world. Mm -hmm. And also I could feel the emotion and I wanted to be a part of it, but I couldn't put that into words or even thought at fourth grade. Mm -hmm. But I can very clearly feel it now looking back, which means it was a big green light for me. Did this just come to you, you said recently while you were thinking about this? Did you start putting these pieces together? Like this isn't something you've been thinking about for years. I, it came I hadn't to you. thought about fourth grade since you asked me be on Sing, Coach, Conduct, my favorite podcast. <laughs> like <laughs> I just love you, Stephen. Yes. Yes, thank you. Isn't that amazing yeah. that all of that came to you now as yes. an adult? And mm -hmm. um, just taking the time to reflect mm -hmm. on the connection. You know, I think it's interesting that even when you were so young, you felt, you, you said this thing about, I felt that I was obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Like, I felt, why did you feel that way? Well, it was reflected back at me. Uh, there were some bullies that called me cocky. And mm -hmm. then I can think about what I was doing when I was being cocky, about ready to get, you know, pummeled on the bus or, mm -hmm. you know, in the locker room. And it was, uh, it was probably obnoxious. But what I know now is, is I had low self-confidence and I had some anxiety as a kid. And I had a little bit of anger, and I didn't know what to do with any of that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any therapy back then. Mm -hmm. And I, didn't, I couldn't sort through those feelings, but I am a highly emotive person. So I am going to use my voice, and I'm going to emote how I'm feeling. And if I don't feel like I'm getting attention, <laughs> or if I, if I don't feel like anybody's paying it, like whatever that feeling was as a kid, it turned out to be cocky and obnoxious, mm -hmm. maybe arrogant. Mm -hmm. And like I said, these are lonely inducing behaviors as a kid. Nobody wants to be around that kid. And it makes me sad to, to think about that kid 10 years old, you know, with feeling like I don't have any friends and not understanding. So you see the so you go and you see this show I, and this thing and something clicks inside of you. It, it clicks like it's okay to emote and be enthusiastic and energetic mm -hmm. and I saw these people being how I was 
and not that I was showing off or not that I was doing something bad, but wow, look, they're doing the thing that I feel like is inside of me, but I didn't know what that thing was. And God love my parents. Like, like my mom did theater when she was um, very young. Uh, she had shared with me later. My dad had never done theater. And um, <laughs> once I started doing theater, like my dad never missed a show. Aww. And it just was like he had no idea what his son was doing up there, like <laughs> why he was doing it. But he never missed a show. And and uh, that always like touched me. And so fast forward a, a couple years and we had to decide band or choir in the because you're we had an elementary school and then we had a junior high seventh eighth and ninth grade going into seventh grade you chose band or or vocal i didn't know and my sister said all the cool kids are in band so i took band <laughs> i feel like we all heard that like at some point in our life and and this is before you did anything in theater yet right Nothing. so this is just you moving into the art scene like Correct. the performing arts scene right and so, so now i'm in the seventh grade band and learning the bass clef mm-hmm and you, so uh, you played what? Uh, trombone. Okay. And I knew the seven, you know, positions, and I was learning music, and I knew a half step, a whole step, and I knew just enough to be dangerous about music theory in middle school, mm-hmm. and it was valuable <laughs> training. Uh, I'll pause there and just say fast forward to when I tried to sing, and they put music in front of me that was treble clef, mm-hmm. and having no idea how the bass clef interacted with the treble clef Mm because I never got to that point. It was just band. I did three years of it, didn't love the trombone, but loved music and being around um, the music people. So that seventh grade experience was a very, very, that that was ground zero for me. And I never really realized it until um, until I looked back on it. And uh, I have told this particular story. I... I was very loud and I was very energetic and exuberant in class as a seventh grader. And um, my teacher, uh, Mrs. Janine Moore, kept me after class one day and pulled me aside. And I thought, here it is again. I'm going to get in trouble because I felt like I was going to be a troubled kid. That was just something that, like, whatever that was, I just Mm -hmm. felt like getting in trouble was part of my makeup. Mm -hmm. That's what you... That's that's how I started seeing myself as a seventh grader going through the change, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this teacher pulled me aside and didn't send me the principal's office, didn't condemn me for my behavior, told me that I had a gift and that I should audition for her play. Hmm. And that that changed my life. And I've told her that many times over since. And uh, And that was the first time that I'd ever considered doing that thing I saw in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I never even knew it existed as a, like as a function, that there, was a, that there was a setup where people came together in school and did theater. Mm-hmm. And so I was scared. My sister was a big ninth grader. All her <laughs> friends were going to audition. And so I got the feeling that, you know, this wouldn't feel good to audition. It was a musical called Happy Days. Mm. So I did Lights and Sound, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I sat there and watched all these theater people being with each other in a way that we didn't be with each other in flag football. We didn't be with each other in in um, tackle football, which was my first year in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. We, that we didn't – it was just new, and theater people – theater kids being around each other was my thing and I I realized it almost immediately 
eighth grade, I didn't audition again, scared, <laughs> just completely like I like didn't know that I had this in me. So I did lights and sound again and loved it. Did you want to secretly audition? Yes, I mean, the whole you time. Wanted you wanted, wanted to. I wanted to be on stage. You wanted to do that, but just not ready yes. yet. Yes, I wanted to. And uh, now I know being on stage, whenever I get to meet anybody who's backstage, I always make sure that I'm encouraging them. And if that's ever anything they wanted to do, just give it a try. Just mm-hmm. just read for the director. You might have fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the ninth grade came along and uh, Miss Mrs. Moore seeked me out in, in the hall mm-hmm. in between classes and said, are you going to audition for me this year? <laughs> And She'd been watching you. She was watching your. <laughs> she she was watching me, and mm-hmm. and and right there on the spot, I said yes, mm-hmm. and I auditioned for Hey Teach. I got the part of the principal. I got to <laughs> hug, because you're not gonna kiss in ninth grade. But I, <laughs> I I got to hug Riley Retzer, who was the teacher. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the sixth graders, and I think some fourth and fifth graders got bust to see the show mm-hmm. that I was a ninth grader in. And I remember at the time, the word got back to me that some of the sixth graders were saying that they were giving up the new kids on the block for me. And I was like, this is the, <laughs> this is the greatest this thing is ever. This the greatest thing ever. Yes. Like, uh, and, and the part about it was is that we were all being these goofy theater kids and loving it and interacting in a way that I hadn't had, mm-hmm. that I was missing. Something about that experience was making me the human I was going to become. Mm-hmm. And it was to be okay and to find that healthy outlet for my energy that I desperately needed. Mrs. Moore saw, as a, as a seventh grader, she saw who I was before I could see who I was. Mm. And that was a profound, just an, a profound epiphany that I had when it comes to what you talk about on your podcast. You get teachers that listen to your podcast and I truly believe they get to see these students where they're at, and they get to they get to see exactly the type of person they could become. They see the potential in them, and um, Mrs. Moore did that with me. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know how that, but that's a gift that that a teacher has, especially at that critical junior high age. Oh yeah. And I've, that's a theme that I've heard discussed on your podcast before, and I, I love it, and it resonates with me. Mm. It's almost like teachers have something in common, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, they hopefully do. they like kids, you know, that they, they, they want to see the best. So then there was, uh, that was seventh grade, and then I didn't sing all through my voice change. And every young male singer that I have met, I encourage them, sing through your voice change. Um, get into choir. Make sure that you're singing through your voice change. Have somebody who knows what they're doing sing with you, and it's okay. Do it in, in a room away from an <laughs> audience. It's going to sound funky, but you have a beautiful high part of your voice and that's going to continue to be a beautiful high part of your voice as Mm -hmm. you sing through your voice change what happened to me is i I went from grandma telling me i sang like an angel to uh dead stop singing for many years and then 16 17 years old singing to the radio with a buddy air quotes of mine Mm -hmm. and being told how horribly i sang Mm. and then having that feeling be immediately oh i can't sing forgetting probably repressing everything that happened before that 
you know, especially that grandma told mm. me how, how good I sang. Mm. So I just continued to do theater knowing that I couldn't sing. And uh, that was a red light. Mm -hmm. And getting into college, as a freshman, I got to do really cool plays in drama club. I went to be a chemical engineer, very technical. And um, But there's this part of me that, that wants to do theater and wants to perform as a very technical chemical engineering person. Uh, had uh, My counselor mm -hmm. in high school, I got the test back, and the test results said high aptitude for math and science. Mm. You should consider chemical engineering. Uh, this is interesting. It, it says uh, what you would enjoy doing is being a circus performer. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, I can remember that like it was yesterday. Oh my like, gosh. like, how do you reconcile those two things? And it, it became my life's work to be, to be able to understand how somebody so technical can also be so performative and emotive. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being in the perfect role, a very technical person, but can also emote and uh, explain things to people. And mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's the joy of my life to be a sustainability leader right now at Hemlock Semiconductor, where I get to talk to the organization, get to talk to people outside about very technical climate change type things. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to do that without a technical background. Mm. And so I understand the technology and the science behind climate change, but I can also help engage it to people and help help make the positive change. So, so you have you you meet the technical with the emotional. Yes. So which is that is a gift in itself to be able to do both things, not just one or the other. I, I find it very interesting again, looking back at your childhood. Like one, um, I don't know, just how, how they finally kind of collided. Like at what point did you realize, I'm going to embrace both of these parts of who I am? Uh, I, if I had to draw it out, it would be a, a long road on one side and a long road on the other that slowly came together in, mm -hmm. the, in the, the last few years. The, li literally in, in the last few years where I, uh, and, and there's been therapy along the, along the road, the, mm -hmm. the last 20 years where I've been able to really connect with, uh, who I am. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it's been a long, long, gentle road where these roads finally came together and it's like, Oh, look at that. I'm, uh, <clears throat> uh my supervisor at work is wonderful. She said, um, uh, yeah, we really need somebody that can help tell the HSC story, Hemlock Semiconductor story. Mm. And uh, that gets to be part of me. And for m many years before that, I would tell people as part of my work journey is, is I'm a storyteller with data. I take the data and I can create the visualizations and I can tell the story about what's happening with the process. Mm. with the data. So I'm a data storyteller. Neat. And so I get to be that person who tells the story of climate change at my work and how we can be a part of the next 30 years of, uh, of change and solutions. You just met Governor Whitmer. I did. Right. So did you tell the story? Like, <laughs> did you get to do some storytelling? Yeah. So Governor Whitmer doesn't need me to tell her the story of climate change because she's 100% behind it and she knows... She actually appointed me to be the um, co-chair of the Energy Intensive Industry mm -hmm. Work Group, reporting into 
the her climate uh, council on climate solutions. Mm-hmm. So I, I was leading a work group, which means I was working directly with Eagle and my industrial and industry um, cohorts. We came together to recommend what needs to happen for Michigan to help be behind climate change and, and help get us to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, Governor Whitmer came to HSC, and I got to meet the person who appointed me, and uh, I got to give her the tour of HSC. And everything that I'm saying is something that I get to do partly because I was invited to do theater because theater helped connect me to the to the very functional part of who I am, mm. which is it's okay to use your voice to describe what you're thinking and feeling. It's okay to be emotive. There's a very functional way to do it that's not obnoxious. And there's a very fun <laughs> and there's a very functional way to do it. And you know what? Gosh darn it, people will actually like you and want to hang out mm-hmm. if you do it in a functional way <laughs> and not an obnoxious way, you know? So yeah, I get to do what I do today. Those two mm-hmm. roads that you asked me about came together, technical yeah. and performative. And and they pay me to do something that I love. You know, something I've never thought about, but while you're saying all this stuff is um when you were on the stage and you were playing characters, did you learn some of that socialization of what's, you know, what what is okay, what isn't okay through the characters that you played? Like, was that part of, was it just that you got to tap into you? Or is it that through the characters, like, you know, characters we read in books or in, you know, um, or that we see on stage? they touch a part of us or teach us something about how we're supposed to interact with the world. Can you c- clarify that for me? Did, uh, how am, you know, am I reading that a certain way? Yeah, Sure. When, when I approach a script, I always beg, borrow and steal from somebody who's done it before me. Mm-hmm. So I'll listen to what they've done before me or I'll watch if I can. And then I will tap into what it is that they are going through and does that help me as a person? Yes. Because any time that you study somebody else, you learn something about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I I, don't know what my life would be like if it wasn't for the almost like 30 years of doing characters. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of person I would be if it wasn't for that 30 years of studying other people and what makes them tick mm-hmm. and what makes them emote. I. I can tell you that I played um, a father in um, rounding third two different times in my life. One was before I was a father and one was after. And I can tell you the first time I was looking at a character like what it would be like to have a son and be the person who brought the snacks and be the person cheering on my my, um, child. I had to tap into what it would be like. And then fast forward to when I actually had a child and I was asked to reprise that role and it was a game changer because now it was like I brought the snacks. <laughs> I've cheered on the child. I know what it feels like to be that character. And so tapping into it then, be, uh, my, my, my insides just kind of blossomed in what I was feeling f- you know, in the moment. Mm. And so, yes, there's something there. It's hard to study, though, because you don't know because you're doing it, Mm -hmm. right? It's almost beyond words in a way, like the experience. I wonder, because you loved theater so much, it was such a big part of your life and you finding yourself, why did you... um, 
choose to go into engineering instead and then make theater and the arts and singing on all that a part, just keep that a part of your life, but not what you do for a living? It's a really good question because I can remember when I got the results on those tests, high aptitude in math and science, you you could be a theater performer. Mm -hmm. And by that time, I had uh, been in a handful of plays, never sang, and I remember thinking, this is so much fun. I love doing this. And I remember sitting down and really thinking, making that really hard high school decision, what am I going to do next? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, I grew up in a very conservative small town in South Dakota. And, and I remember something that I really clung to is, is I want to have a secure job and I want to be able to feed myself and my family. <laughs> and I, I knew that security was mm -hmm. a high ranking decision maker for me. Mm -hmm. And then I also knew by that time that I could do this theater thing on the side and get a, and be quite happy doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I made the choice between those two decisions because it was, you know, be in the circus <laughs> or be, be, a, be in the circus of theater, right? Be, be a performer or, uh -huh. or uh, do, do the technical. And uh, this whole other time, I was really enjoying the road to AP Calculus. Mm. I mean, I got to be on the track where in high school I was going to study calculus. I got to be on the track where I got to talk with Mr. Steve Karen about the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology and what happens when you become a chemical engineer. I got to talk with some technical people, and I, I, I understood that that is something that I was also drawn to. Mm -hmm. So it's a great question because <clears throat> I... Because it was a big choice. Mm -hmm. These high school students that have to choose, it's a big choice. Mm -hmm. And and I just talked to I talked to a variety of people, including that counselor, and made my decision. Mm. What advice would you give to adults who are like, oh, you know, I don't have time to do that kind of stuff, like to do theater. Like even if they love theater, we're so busy. And, and I think we perhaps live in a culture that it's like if you're not making money from it, if you're not, you know, becoming the best at it, why would you just give your time to something because it's fun or because it, you know, it, it fills a bucket? You know, what advice would you give to, to that person who, who loves theater or loves, you know, wants to do something but just says, oh, I just don't, I don't have time for that. I'm so busy. Yeah, my, uh, I'm always wondering, am I doing enough for the community? Like, am I doing enough? And my wife, Alicia, always reminds me, this is your thing. You're giving to the community. Sure, it's gratifying for me to be on stage or to be a part of a production, but mm -hmm. I'm donating a lot of my time. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a, it's something that I'm not getting paid for, and I do it for love of theater, but uh, she also reminds me, this is for love of the community. Mm. So I'm giving back to the community. So if there's an adult out there who is thinking about should I, shouldn't I, it could be something that they could also think, well, if I've, I've had these thoughts about maybe doing this, this could also be part of your community service, your volunteering, you're, you're helping the community. And what I've also found is I'm showing my children something when they see me working at something mm. and then they see the final product mm -hmm. my children are learning something from me 
And I don't know what that is. I don't push them in any directions. I have had a child who's actually auditioned for plays, but I try and I try to stay out of it. <laughs> I try not to. <laughs> I try just to lavish my praise and then back up because I don't want the comparison to be there. Because mm. she's seen dad on stage, right? Mm-hmm. So my children get to see theater through me being a part of it. So I would say to somebody, be a part of the community and show your children potentially what theater is all about. And for me personally, I found my people. Mm-hmm. So if there's any part of you that that wants to, that is curious about what those people are, what I'm talking about, you, you, you almost have to give it a try. Mm-hmm. You almost have to. I've never thought about it as being um, community service. It I is. love love that idea well because they need people to show up yeah especially you know we live in midland we Mm -hmm. live in a community that values the arts and we have the midland you know the the our big performing arts center center for the arts and um you got to have people show up and you want to have the shows be good because then the people who go to those shows you want them to appreciate art and you want it to be good you know if you want them to appreciate it i've just never thought about it that way steven like that's very um, very interesting. And and that was my wife, Alicia, who mm. reminded me of that. And the Midland Center for the Arts is a great... Like, I showed up in 1998 on a plane, and that's what they do for chemical engineers out of South Dakota, is uh, people come to their career office, mm-hmm. people up companies like Dow, like Dow Corning, mm-hmm. DuPont, Hemlock Semiconductor... They show up, and at South Dakota School of Mines, we have these engineers that want to work, and so they fly us around often, and I flew to Midland in 1998, and I, the, the HR person, or maybe a contract HR person that was giving me the tour of the town, mm-hmm. uh, said, anything else you want to see? And I said, well, where does the community theater people get to, get to do shows? And that was it. That was the the, the click. Like, mm. I'm a chemical engineer. I made my choice four or five years ago in high school. But now I get to work for a living as a chemical engineer. But now I'm asking the question, where would I fit in if I do theater here? Mm-hmm. And uh, she took me to the Midland Center for the Arts and walked me around. And I said, no, no, no. Where do people that you know are volunteering get to do theater? <laughs> and she said, no, it's right here. Uh-huh. And my jaw dropped. Like, it's an amazing facility. Yeah. So I auditioned for a show in 1998. I was a new person. I, I didn't get, there was only two parts. I didn't get in. And then that fall in November, I went to a workshop for, and this is either, I, I believe in serendipity more than irony, mm. for a workshop for My Fair Lady. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's awesome. And, and I love it because uh, there I met Jim Holmeyer. Mm. And there I met some people that I have known for t- over 20 years, theater people. And I showed up because I knew that show. I knew My Fair Lady, and I, I knew it was a musical, but I was like, well, Pickering doesn't have to sing, and mm-hmm. maybe I'll just show up, and they'll make me into a non-singing role. Mm-hmm. The whole time, in my mind, I, divor- I've, I divorced the fact that I knew I, I could ever sing. I mm-hmm. showed up because I'm going to be a non-singing role. Mm-hmm. And I showed up to that workshop, and Jim Holmeyer at one point made us uh, stand in a circle and sing, I'm Getting Married in the Morning. And then he started having us, one at a time, sing it alone. 
<laughs> and this was his workshop. You came to a musical theater workshop. You're yep. going to sing. Yep. And it, I immediately started freezing up, and I got red in the face, and I sang it horribly off pitch, and I didn't know how to use that part of my It's not a high song. It's not a hard song. It's right on my break. I know now I can because I've had some training. But I it was just horribly, horribly uh, embarrassing, and I had all the feels of and I, I think I ran down the hall and got sick. Mm. It was just a really traumatic experience to not know how to use that part of my voice, but to like to to to, to be asked to do so and then to try, it got me over a little hump. And I I uh, I inquired about what does it take to do this on stage, and they started connecting me to resources and voice coaches. And um, actually, my first voice coach ever was the wife of uh, Doug Aldridge. It was Carolyn Aldridge. And uh, uh, <clears throat> he recruited me from the South Dakota School of Mines. Mm -hmm. He was a, he was a uh, Dow Corning employee, employee who recruited people from South Dakota. <laughs> His wife was my first voice coach. Oh, wow. And so she helped get me prepared for the audition. I auditioned. I know it wasn't great. And I know that that performance. I, so I ended up getting the part of Alfie Doolittle <laughs> as a very young person. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And they aged me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I reached out to Penny Padgett, the director, just a few weeks ago and said, what made you cast me? I didn't know how to sing. Mm -hmm. And she said, Jim Holmeyer said that he could work with you. But the, the energy that you brought to it was was why we cast you and the comedic timing and the mm. performance that we saw. And so that was the start, and I was hooked. I was trying to sing then uh, probably 20 years after Grandma told me mm -hmm. that I could sing. And that was 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, and that was the start of me trying to sing. Mm. Because Jim Holmeyer had a workshop, and I showed up. Mm. And didn't Jim say something to you? Because you've told me, not the full story before, mm -hmm. but there's something that Jim said to you that's really stuck with you, and I'm trying to see if I can remember. <laughs> but there was something, you said he said something to you. Um, I'm sure Jim has said many things to you over the years. One of the things he said was, is you're going to start singing. And I remember him working with me and working with me and working with me. And I believe it was all around that break mm -hmm. or the passaggio. Yep, yep. And I, re and, and I remember the things he was trying to do now because as I'm more trained, I'm like, oh, that's what Jim was trying to do. Mm. He was trying to get me to, to support so that I could sing on that break or right near it. And he was trying to help me get into my head tone. Um, one of the things he said was, is, okay, you're going to start singing now, but you're going to very quickly get to a plateau. Don't give up. Mm -hmm. He said, don't just stop. Keep working. Mm -hmm. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because now I get to show up to an audition where I feel pretty confident. Mm -hmm. And I, I, get to, um, I, I get to be the person who, who gets up there and emotes. And what I've learned now over the years of watching other people, mm -hmm. especially the men, because usually we need men in community theater, mm -hmm. right? Is I, I now I look around at at the people who get to lead shows, get to be a lead character, and and I I notice the things that that I'm most drawn to is how kind they are, mm. 
and how much I want to be around them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's everything to me now is uh, I remember as a young person not feeling like I was being kind or feeling like I was being the cocky kid or arrogant. And, and part of my mental health journey has been figuring out who that you know, person is inside that little boy mm-hmm. and try to help him mature into a man and to be somebody that others want to be around. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's been the that's been the goal of my life is to to help myself learn so that I can can be somebody who stands there and other people saying, wow, I kind of want to be like him. Like I looked at David Young. Mm -hmm. You had Molly Young, his daughter on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Like I looked at David King. Mm -hmm. Like I like like I looked at David Clayton. Uh, real quick side story david clayton was frankenfurter in the first rocky horror that i'd ever seen performed live Mm, he mm -hmm. was frankenfurter and (laughs) he was one of the three davids like i have these three davids that i look up to as a young man and Mm -hmm. i have looked and said i want to be like them because of their kindness and the way that they attract people but the way that they stand and deliver Mm -hmm. the way that the community and community theater needs them to Mm -hmm. and i remember talking to david clayton i i was too scared to audition for that rocky horror over a decade ago like nearly 20 years ago Mm -hmm. and i I remember talking to him, like, how did you get into this? And David Clayton said, you know, I was downstate uh, in Metro Detroit, and they needed men who could sing. And they needed men who could help lead a show. And I was like, well, I know how to sing. Mm -hmm. And that's how he got into it, because he Mm -hmm. knew how to sing. How cool is that, that you said... I know how to sing because that even that, that journey, right? Because it was a long time right. that you would have never said that. Right. And that all goes back to that workshop, doesn't it? It does. Wow. It does. And and like I remember being in um I remember being in a David Young show and just being in awe at how he carried himself and wanting to be somebody that carried myself in in a way that others would go oh yeah that that's a leader that's somebody that i mm-hmm. i want i want to carry myself that way and i i can say that now because of the work i've done that says sometimes in my life i haven't been that person mm-hmm. right i haven't been somebody that i would want my children to emulate well i need to be that person that my children would emulate mm-hmm. and that's <clears throat> that's been part of my my journey mm-hmm. <clears throat> Tell me more about David Young. He gave you voice lessons, right? Yes, for he a did. While? Yeah? Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I love David Young. Um, I was in Jekyll and Hyde with him, and I auditioned, and I got to be in in the ensemble, mm-hmm. and so I got to learn how to be in a show with David Young leading as Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think my voice coach had moved out of town. And I approached him, can, can you give me a few voice lessons? He said, sure. So we went to Chapel Lane. He was the pastor there. Mm-hmm. And he gave me voice lessons. But the thing, that, And so he helped me through many of the challenges of singing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the, I think, and I've shared this with him recently, because as I was thinking about what I would say on this podcast, this big light bulb came up about David Young, and I... I, uh, I actually got on a, a FaceTime with him and Nancy, mm-hmm. and we chatted about all this. Oh. And the thing that most resonated with me with David 
is yes, he is a tremendous vocalist and somebody to look up to <clears throat> vocally, but uh, his character and the way that people want to be around him is way more important. Mm -hmm. And I and and that's you've asked people on this podcast, you know, what do you want to be your legacy? Mm -hmm. And I know that is that through all the work that I've done is my my legacy. I hope is that. People would say, you know, I like to be around him. He was a good guy. Mm -hmm. Noth nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. Nothing else matters. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, and they're a wonderful family. I mean, look at their children. Oh, you know? yes. They're amazing. Um, yeah. Wow. Thank so so t with your voice lessons, what are some lessons you learned along the way, things that, that clicked with you where, you know, you went from not understanding to, oh, I get it. I get it now. I get how this works. What were some, some big learning moments for you? The hardest thing, I call it my calibration. Um, and I'm a very, very engineering like mindset. <laughs> and being very technical, I learned, I learned over the years that I, I needed to understand. If I see a note on the treble clef, I need to understand what that note is. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't do it, my particular brain, I can't do it everything just by hearing. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to be given a piece of sheet music, I need to know where that is in my three voices. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know I had three voices back then. Mm -hmm. And so all the work of, un, of, of, of calibrating the part of my voice to, which, to, to those notes mm -hmm. and where those passagios are. Um, because I remember that first time singing with uh, Jim Holmeyer, it was uh, with a little bit, with a little bit, right? Like mm -hmm. that was just on my break. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and here I'm, here I am having difficulty doing that. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I, I just remember having no idea what part of my voice I should be in right now. Mm -hmm. And then Jim in later shows, he, uh, he would tell me just lower or higher, which would help me understand, oh, I'm, I need to be in the higher part of my voice right now. Mm -hmm. He was actually telling me, you're singing flat right now. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was, oh, I need, to, I need to get it up into that other instrument. Mm -hmm. if, if I have five strings on my voice, mm -hmm. I'm yep. in the wrong string right now. Yeah. So I need to hop to the other string. I didn't, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And it turned out I have an ear to match pitch. Some people don't have an ear. I don't have a great ear to match pitch, but good enough that I could just get up to the next string and boom, I'm on pitch. Mm. So for you, <clears> feeling... Yes. The, the physical, um, yes, yes. actually feeling what's going on was important, not just hearing for you. Right. And then the other thing I learned is the first time I tried to do a show, I was listening to the Broadway show of My Fair Lady, and I was listening mm -hmm. to Stanley Holloway talk singing the songs, and I was trying to sing the pitches that he was talking. Mm. And then I would come to rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And it'd be all wrong. Be and I did not understand that. Mm -hmm. The very next show I, I tried to do <clears throat> was Annie Get Your Gun. And I was, uh, I believe, Charlie, one, the manager. And I was able to sing There's No Business Like Show Business without much of a problem. And I didn't realize at the time the reason why it was so different is my process for learning the song was all wrong with My Fair Lady. Stanley Holloway's voice was great, but he was talk singing. Mm -hmm. And I was I was singing his talking to, <laughs> to um, I, you know, there's no business like show business was very easy to pick up because they're singing the whole time. Mm -hmm. 
And now what I know what's so important for me is my process. My process of learning a song or learning uh, an exercise, um, I, I, I just need re repetition and I need to, I, I, when I learn a song, I need to learn the melody or the harmony that I'm singing. I, I need to have that in a separate recording for myself mm -hmm. because that is, that is how I ended up becoming more of a, of, of a, of a singer or at least people would imagine, wow, he knows how to sing mm -hmm. <laughs> because I put in the work <laughs> beforehand. Yeah. Well, we, we've talked about this and actually I had asked if you'd be willing to talk about this. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and that is how mm -hmm. your process for learning how you kind of realize some things about yourself, you know, through your therapy, through just mm -hmm. reflection, and how that affects your your process of learning music and singing and all of that. So would you share yes. that? Yes, absolutely. So <clears throat> in my mental health journey, when there was anger or anxiety, um, there was almost always a personal or a work issue. And I didn't realize there was also part of my singing and performance issue. But the, the personal or the work issue was almost always centered around how I expected things to go mm -hmm. in my personal life or at work. And looking back at my career, I've had a blessed career, and I'm in this amazing uh, company that I get to do amazing things. But there had been times where things weren't going the way that I felt like they should go, the process of it all, and I would get quite anxious and quite upset and it was unbecoming of a professional in our work environment, in our culture. Uh, everything that I just said to you, now take it home into like a relationship, into a marriage. Mm. Very, very difficult if things aren't going the way that you think they're supposed to be going, which is life, mm -hmm. right? But you have a script in your head yes, of how I, everyone needs to behave <laughs> and how the world needs to do yes. what you want it to do. Yes, and I thought that was normal. I thought uh, everybody had a script in their head and everybody had a process that this is the way life is. And sh sure, this is how I do laundry and this is how I make sure my keys are in the right spot. Or this is the way that I learn how to sing music. And um, through therapy... I got into coping mechanisms where, oh, I can, I can be at work and things are actually really, really great. I can be in relationship and things are actually really, really great. And I'm married to this wonderful woman, um, my, my, my second wife. So this most recent therapist, and it's not like, uh, mental health is so important and everybody deserves a little therapy, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a wonderful, blessed life and I'm very incredibly happy and I still see a therapist on occasion. And the most recent therapist listened to some of my stuff and he said, Stephen, can you tell me that last thing one more time? Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing I told him was about how it used to perturb me when I would go to work and I had forgot my laptop and I got a half hour drive to work. Mm. In Hemlock, and I'd have to drive home because my whole day would be shot of it in my laptop. And so now I have a process where I set it in a certain spot, and that helps me make sure that I never forget it. And th the same thing had happened over a decade ago with my keys. You, you go to my work without your w w uh, without your badge, and now you got this whole thing you got to do to get another badge. Mm -hmm. Well, that bothered me, and it perturbed me, and so I developed this little process to make sure that I put my badge and my keys, and my keys were always so. Long story short is, is he said, Stephen, everything you told me, I, th I think maybe, and uh, maybe you might be high functioning autistic, mm -hmm. and and I, I said, uh, 
you know, what exactly does that mean? Because I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we used to call it Asperger's. And, um, but there's a whole spectrum of everybody might be on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But you in particular, the way that you focus on process and you have process that helps you cope and it helps your life become more functional mm-hmm. and more happy, uh, the, the things that you've learned over time means that it, it's, it's very possible that you're you know, a mm-hmm. high-functioning autistic person. And if you just are a little curious about it and you read up on it, maybe it'll help connect a few things for you. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I talked with my wife about it. <laughs> and I've talked with other people about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so what things did you find out? Well, <clears throat> there's so many little things. Um, I, it, sh- it shouldn't be so hard to change the type of socks you wear, as an example. For me, it's a whole thing in my brain about deciding to to start wearing a different type of socks. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be that way. It's that way for me, and now I get it. I'm like, oh, this is just me being me, whether that's me being high-functioning autistic or not. It's like I have a reason for years now where I wore that kind of sock, mm-hmm. and now things have changed. I'm getting a little older, and my legs get a little colder, but now I'm wearing long socks, much longer socks than I ever used to. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I, I laugh about it with my wife now. And she's like, yep, that's probably part of it. <laughs> um, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a big deal to change like the type of pants I wear to work. Mm-hmm. But for me, it is mm-hmm. because there's a reason why I've worn <laughs> the kind of pants I have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in, when it comes to singing yeah. and that whole journey that I told you about, um, when you find out that you sing like an angel and then you're told, no, you, you sing very badly, that became part of my process. It just became part of my world. Mm-hmm. And then to to start to try to learn how to sing as an adult, the process of doing it for me became incredibly important, and maybe more so than some. I don't know, mm-hmm. I, because I don't live the life of other people as adults trying to figure out how to sing. Yeah, but um, I had to connect. I, ha- I had to connect all the literature I could I could learn. I had learned about the voice, and I learned about the. Pedagogy? Uh, uh, pedagogy? Pedagogy. Like a vocal pedagogy. Yes, yeah. yes. And I even learned from you, I was saying lyrics wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but like I had to learn these parts. So does everybody else, yes. so just so you know. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I got a book called uh, Singing for Dummies. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I read it cover to cover twice. And I started learning about the three voices. And I started learning about, I needed to engulf myself in all of the technical aspects of singing mm-hmm. to to a point where the half step became like incredibly important to me the semitone mm-hmm. because the shorthand was not a crisp process the the five the treble clef five lines and the spaces mm-hmm. and these half step or these these flats and sharps on the left they weren't crisp enough for me i didn't understand what the interval was i was singing mm-hmm. because at, at, at a glance it could be a half step. It could be a whole step. It could be three half steps, which is major third. <laughs> I don't know. It's too early for it's that, early. Stephen. But the reason why I bring it up is, is, is I would be singing in Assassins, one of the first shows back from a long eight-year hiatus when I had my, my baby. And Matt Travis's first show at the Midland Center for the Arts, uh-huh. his music director, was Assassins. <clears throat> and he was music director. 
And Jance Black was the um, accompanist. Mm. And they would have to listen to me ask these absurd questions. But I'm assertive enough now and okay enough and not being the best that I would just ask absurd questions of them. Like, mm. how many half steps is that? Mm. And they would look at each other and start counting on their fingers. Right, right. Because as many musicians, pe- you don't. No, 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 you don't. But I, I do remember in college being like, intervals didn't make sense to me right away like like I, I wanted to write them all out like an f to a g is this and mm-hmm. and because it didn't click so I can empathize that far but then to put it all like to put it all into half steps is yeah. something that is not typical like you have yeah. to really think about that I put it into a spreadsheet a uh-huh. song into a spreadsheet and Matt Travis to this day reminds me he's like you put this in a spreadsheet <laughs> yeah. and I'm like I did because my anxiety level started to go lower and lower and lower as I put like a song's intervals into a spreadsheet because mm. I could see and visualize like, oh, that's a seven half step. And they had their musical terms for it. Mm-hmm. But for me, as however it was that I was learning, I needed to know what the interval was in terms of half steps because it's a continuous scale. Mm-hmm. Just like dollars is a continuous scale and temperature is a continuous scale. It was something that I could, I knew, and, and I knew that 12 half steps was an octave. Mm-hmm. So if you told me how many half steps it was, um, in relation to that 12 half step octave, I could immediately go, oh, that's seven half steps. Mm. That's a little more than uh, half an octave. Wow. And then, and then the, th- the thing that was, there's a lot of half steps, whole steps, and three half steps in singing. There's a lot. And I could get that feeling down. Mm. I could calibrate my voice mm-hmm. to the number of <clears throat> half steps, but I'd never learned what a major third was. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, I'd never, I'd never learned what some of the the words they were using as musicians. They didn't mean, they didn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, that's part of my journey. That's incredible. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that because you know how how cool would it be for a teacher to be like, man, you know, this kid's really struggling, mm-hmm. and then to think have to think outside of the box and say, wait a second, like. Do you understand half steps? Do you? Because I would never imagine in a million years that that would work Mm -hmm. for somebody. But so for you to share that, it's mind blowing for me. Like, because that's not how my brain works. And it's not how my brain would work in a million years. But as teachers, it's our job to figure out how things work for somebody else. And just remember, the five lines Mm -hmm. are, are shorthand. Mm-hmm. Somebody came up with those five lines, those treble clef and the bass clef. They're shorthand. Yeah, you can fit so many more notes huh. in that shorthand, but then your brain's got to do these things. And I'm a very visual person, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, "What is that interval?" Yeah, wow. Well, and I love I I use this all the time now. The calibrate. You know, mm-hmm. we need to calibrate our voices because um, singing is scientific. And I I think that one of the things that I really try to do as an educator is demystify the uh, the the singing as this this thing that some people have and some people don't, and it's a skill. Mm-hmm. And and um and so when you say calibrate, it's such a, a beautifully technical way of saying you need to put your tongue here and you need to put your larynx here and you need to do that. And that works really well as opposed to saying, could you sing the rainbow for me, Stephen? Right. Like, OK. Right. Like, but, <laughs> you know, and, and not to say that those things don't work because it imagining things and all of that, the fuzzy stuff, the warm, fuzzy stuff that has its place, too. 
but um, but it's so helpful to have that language. And uh, it's just great, Stephen. Thank you for all of that. Um, what has been the most valuable lesson that you've learned um, being a part of the uh, the theater program or being in the arts? What has been the biggest thing for you? I think finding my people. Um, almost every time I'm in a cast, I'm re-reminded about how important it, it was to find my people and, and how incredibly important it is as a human to find people that you can relate to and have kind of a common understanding. And that's what theater has done for me. It, it gave me a place to exist, to explore who I was going to become as a human. Mm. And it made me connect to a part of myself that up until I found theater I I I didn't know existed and I'm not positive how my life would have turned out without theater and without being invited into it but there's a there is a chance that I would have taken a few bad turns with a few bad crowds and that I may not be I, I'm, I'm almost positive I wouldn't be the person I am today so it has had a profound effect to find my people. Is there any question you wish I would have asked you or anything that you would would like to say that you didn't get to say? I think we covered almost everything. I do. Yay! Yeah, I because you always ask people what you want their legacy to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I as a longtime listener, first you already time did caller, that. You already covered all I, that. You're I like, already, I'm ready to go. I already covered it. I'm like, I want to be kind. I want to be I want to be welcomed and continue for years to come to be welcome into the theater community. Mm-hmm. I want to be a, a person that gets to do this. Mm-hmm. That's something that I often have found myself saying is, is I get to do this. I get to be around these people. Um, one of my Davids, David Clayton, said that uh, I woke up this morning and I get to do this. Mm. I get to play Frankenfurter. Mm. And yeah. Well, I got to interview you today. <laughs> That's how I feel. This has been really, really wonderful. And thank you for, you know, thank you for listening and really thinking about the things that you were going to say because you have taught me a lot listening to you. And I'm, I'm really grateful to know you. So am I. It's grateful to know you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sing, Coach, Conduct. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can contact Megan Ferrison on Facebook or Instagram or by emailing thesingingconductor at gmail.com.